Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Monday, July the 3rd, 2023. On this edition of The Politocrat, a reading of parts of Frederick Douglass's July 5th, 1852 speech in Rochester, New York. What to the American slave is the 4th of July? You will hear portions of the speech read by the esteemed actor and activist, the now late Ossie Davis. And you will also hear yours truly reading parts of the speech as well. All of that coming up next. Dear listener, welcome to this brand new edition of the Politocrat Daily Podcast. It is Monday, July the 3rd, 2023. I do hope you're well here, wherever you may be, whenever you're listening to this episode. This is the day before the uh, United States celebrates its independence tomorrow, of course. And so wherever you may be listening to this, I do hope you're well once again. And I hope you enjoyed your weekend. A few things before getting going here. It's been nearly a week, would you believe, since the last episode of this podcast. My gosh, so much has happened in the last few days. The United States Supreme Court has been absolutely demonic in its decision-making over the last few days, especially last Thursday and Friday. We saw the stripping this past uh, Thursday of the... Uh, use of race when considering college admissions, although in a very, I think, somewhat contradictory majority opinion by Chief Justice John Roberts, seemed very much to me as if he was also still leaving the door open for race. I'll get to the Supreme Court decision another day. That particular decision uh, in full detail on a separate episode, because I think it requires a separate episode to focus solely on that Supreme Court opinion. And that decision again, a 63 decision, ended up saying essentially that race is not a factor that can be used in, uh, in, in the in affirmative action in colleges and universities in the United States. Now, again, you will see that the majority opinion also leaves the door open for race at the same time. So it's a very strange and illogical decision made by Chief Justice John Roberts. But you really have to read the uh, the concurring opinion of Chief Justice of Chief Justice of Justice Clarence Thomas. I really hesitate to even use the word justice in front of his name because he's an absolute crook, and uh, and I think he listen. He's the most unqualified current person on the Supreme Court there is. Uh, he is absolutely uh, should not be anywhere near the Supreme Court. I think we know that by now. He and the rest of these far right wingers are corrupt and crooked on that court. And so you should read his concurring opinion, but you also must read both the dissenting opinion of Sonia Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor, and also the uh, dissenting opinion, especially of Justice Jackson, who I think was phenomenal in her dissenting opinion. So I'll get to all those things on another episode. I promise a lot's been going on the last few days since I last spoke with you, dear listener. But on this episode, what you're going to hear coming up after the break are two sections, and it's going to be all run in one, in one fell swoop. You're going to first hear from the legendary activist and actor and humanitarian Ossie Davis. Now, Ossie Davis passed away in the year 2005. But what you're going to be hearing, and I got to meet Ossie Davis, by the way, as well as Ruby D, who I think are royalty. They're just pure royalty. Uh, two of the nicest people I've ever met. Met them in Harlem, USA, about 35 years ago, or maybe a little bit less than that now. I forget. Might be a bit more than that. I'm not quite sure, but it's been a long, long time. I took a picture of them, too, and I cannot find that picture. This was the days before cell phones. So... Um, I couldn't store this photo and keep it. It's a Polaroid picture. And um, never were there two more majestic people, two more majestic uh, people as a married couple than both Ossie Davis and Ruby D. Fantastic, phenomenal people. Both of them have passed away. And um, 
Ossie Davis, who passed away in 2005, um, and I went to his funeral as well, uh, the Riverside Church in Harlem, uh, in Morningside Heights, as I call it, really, I call it Harlem. But the bottom line is, you're going to be hearing after the break, Ossie Davis reading out excerpts of the very important speech that Frederick Douglass made on July the 5th, 1852 in Rochester, New York. Now, I have talked about the speech before. I've read from the speech before a few years ago on this podcast, but I want to do it again because I think it's needed again. So you will hear from Ossie Davis reading excerpts of the speech, not the whole speech, excerpts of it. He jumps around, actually, um, in his reading of it. But you will hear him and then you'll hear me read parts of the speech as well. And I will also put in the liner notes of this episode a link to the entire speech. So I want to make that clear. Neither myself nor Ossie Davis will be reading out the speech in full. But there will be substantial portions of the speech that you will be hearing first from Ossie Davis which will last around 20 or so minutes. And then you'll hear me for about 20 or so minutes after that. But there will be no commercial break taken between his reading and mine. So I want you to get ready to listen to this very important speech. And if you don't know who Frederick Douglass was, I will tell you, you need to educate yourself on him. I will say this to you. Frederick Douglass was um, really a phenomenal, phenomenal person. He was born into enslavement, a black man born into enslavement in the United States. He learned to read and write at a time where his life could have been taken. He could have been killed had it been known that he was trying to educate himself. If it was known that he had been educated or was educating himself, he could have been executed. He would have been executed. But over many years, Frederick Douglass who was illiterate, did not have any reading level whatsoever, taught himself how to read and how to write while he was enslaved. He did this under penalty of death here in the United States. He wrote several books, including his autobiography and a number of other books as well. And I urge you to do the research on him and learn a lot more about Frederick Douglass, who, of course, became an abolitionist. Yes, he did. He absolutely did. He became an abolitionist, one of the leading, the leading abolitionist in the United States against enslavement. He met with United States President Abraham Lincoln, In fact, Lincoln sought his counsel on several things, several times. Now, Steven Spielberg didn't put that in his movie named Lincoln, but those are facts. Frederick Douglass was invited to the White House on a number of occasions by President Lincoln. Facts. So that's a little bit of background. But after the break... You're going to be hearing from Ossie Davis and then myself reading excerpts from a very important speech that Frederick Douglass refused to give on the 4th of July. He was invited to give this speech on the 4th of July. He refused to do so. He refused. So instead, he gave it on the 5th of July in 1852, when black people in this country remained in bondage remained enslaved, were continuing to be murdered and lynched and executed. So I'm just giving you a picture of what was happening at the time that Lincoln, excuse me, that Frederick Douglass was giving this speech and at the time that this country was celebrating its quote-unquote independence. Because bondage was still happening when independence came to the United States. Enslavement, the enslavement of black people was still happening. So I want to just give that context. When I come back, you'll hear Ossie Davis reading out parts of Frederick Douglass's legendary speech of July 5th, 
1852 in Rochester, New York, entitled, What to the American Slave is the 4th of July? It doesn't happen like we think it does. No one rolls the tanks. No armies meet in pitched battle. It happens quietly, little by little. And because so many think it can't happen, it does happen. Little by little, the rules change. It doesn't seem shocking or sudden. And that's the point. Fewer places to vote, longer lines. Don't worry, they say. We're just improving the system. They hope we won't notice the rules are changing because they lost the last election. They hope we just won't care enough to stop them. They believe they can take America away from us and we won't even notice. We know who they are. We know what they want. The question is, who are we? Do we let them get away with it or do we fight? Democracy is on the ballot. Vote while your vote still counts. The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. The meaning of July 4th for the Negro. The papers and placards say that I am to deliver a 4th of July oration. This certainly sounds large and out of the common way for me. It is true that I have often had the privilege to speak in this beautiful hall and to address many who now honor me with their presence. But neither their familiar faces nor the perfect gaze I think I have of Corinthian Hall seems to free me from embarrassment. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, the distance between this platform and the slave plantation from which I escaped is considerable. And the difficulties to be overcome in getting from the latter to the former are by no means slight. That I am here today is, to me, a matter of astonishment as well as of gratitude. You will not, therefore, be surprised if in what I have to say I evince no elaborate preparation, nor grace my speech with any high-sounding exordium. With little experience and with less learning, I have been able to throw my thoughts hastily and imperfectly together. And trusting to your patient and generous indulgence, I will proceed to lay them before you. This, for the purpose of this celebration, is the 4th of July. It is the birthday of your national independence and of your political freedom. This, to you, is what the Passover was to the emancipated people of God. It carries your minds back to the day and to the act of your great deliverance, and to the signs and to the wonders associated with that act and that day. This celebration also marks the beginning of another year of your national life and reminds you that the Republic of America is now 76 years old. I am glad, fellow citizens, that your nation is so young. Seventy-six years, though a good old age for a man, is but a mere speck in the life of a nation. Three score years and ten is the allotted time for individual men. But nations number their years by thousands. According to this fact, you are, even now, only in the beginning of your national career still lingering in the period of childhood. I repeat, I am glad this is so. There is hope in the thought, and hope is much needed under the dark clouds which lower above the horizon. 
The eye of the reformer is met with angry flashes portending disastrous times. But his heart may well beat lighter at the thought that America is young and that she is still in the impressible stage of her existence. May he not hope that high lessons of wisdom, of justice, and of truth will yet give direction to her destiny. Were the nation older, the patriot's heart might be sadder and the reformer's brow heavier. Its future might be shrouded in gloom and the hope of its prophets go out in sorrow. There is consolation in the thought that America is young. Great streams are not easily turned from channels worn deep in the course of ages. They may sometimes rise in quiet and stately majesty and inundate the land, refreshing and fertilizing the earth with their mysterious properties. They may also rise in wrath and fury and bear away on their angry waves the accumulated wealth of years of toil and hardship. They, however, gradually flow back to the same old channel and flow on as serenely as ever. But while the river may not be turned aside, it may dry up and leave nothing behind but the withered branch and the unsightly rock to howl in the abyss-sweeping wind the sad tale of departed glory. As with rivers, so with nations. Fellow citizens, I am not wanting in respect for the fathers of this republic. The signers of the Declaration of Independence were brave men. They were great men, too. Great enough to give frame to a great age. It does not often happen to a nation to raise at one time such a number of truly great men. The point from which I am compelled to view them is not certainly the most favorable. And yet, I cannot contemplate their great deeds with less than admiration. They were statesmen, patriots, and heroes. And for the good they did, and the principles they contended for, I will unite with you to honor their memory. They loved their country better than their own private interests. And though this is not the highest form of human excellence, all will concede that it is a rare virtue, and that when it is exhibited, it ought to command respect. He who will intelligently lay down his life for his country is a man whom it is not in human nature to despise. Your fathers stake their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor on the cause of their country. In their admiration of liberty, they lost sight of all other interest. They were peace men, but they preferred revolution to peaceful submission to bondage. They were quiet men, but they did not shrink from agitating against oppression. They showed forbearance, but they knew its limits. They believed in order, but not in the order of tyranny. With them, nothing was settled that was not right. With them, justice, liberty, and humanity were final, not slavery and oppression. You may well cherish the memory of such men. They were great in their day and generation. Their solid manhood stands out the more as we contrast it with these degenerate times. How circumspect, exact, and proportionate were all their movements. How unlike the politicians of an hour. Their statesmanship looked beyond the passing moment and stretched away in strength into the distant future. They seized upon eternal principles and set a glorious example in their defense. Mark them. 
fully appreciating the hardships to be encountered, firmly believing in the right of their cause, honorably inviting the scrutiny of an onlooking world, reverently appealing to heaven to attest their sincerity, soundly comprehending the solemn responsibility they were about to assume, wisely measuring the terrible odds against them, your fathers, the fathers of this republic, did most deliberately, under the inspiration of a glorious patriotism and with a sublime faith in the great principles of justice and freedom, lay deep the cornerstone of the national superstructure, which has risen and still rises in grandeur around you. Of this fundamental work, this day is the anniversary. Our eyes are met with demonstrations of joyous enthusiasm. Banners and pennants wave exultingly on the breeze. The din of business, too, is hushed. Even Mammon seems to have quitted his grasp on this day. The ear-piercing fife and the stirring drum unite their accents with the ascending peal of a thousand church bells. Prayers are made, hymns are sung, and sermons are preached in honor of this day. While the quick martial tramp of a great and multitudinous nation, echoed back by all the hills, valleys, and mountains of a vast continent, bespeak the occasion one of thrilling and universal interest, a nation's jubilee. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of national justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? And am I, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess the benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? Would to God, both for your sakes and ours, that an affirmative answer could be truthfully returned to these questions. Then would my task be light and my burden easy and delightful. For who is there so cold that a nation's sympathy could not warm him? Who so obdurate and dead to the claims of gratitude that would not thankfully acknowledge such priceless benefits? Who so stolid and selfish that would not give his voice to swell the hallelujahs of a nation's jubilee when the chains of servitude had been torn from his limbs? I am not that man. In a case like that, the dumb might eloquently speak and the lame man leap as in heart. But such is not the state of the case. I say it with a sad sense of disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? If so, there is a parallel to your conduct. 
And let me warn you that it is dangerous to copy the examples of a nation whose crimes, towering up to heaven, were thrown down by the breath of the Almighty, burying that nation in irrevocable ruin. I can today take up the plaintive lament of a peeled and woe-smitten people. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there, they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Fellow citizens, above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions whose chains, heavy and grievous yesterday, are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. If I do forget, if I do not faithfully remember those bleeding children of sorrow this day, may my right hand forget her cunning and may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. To forget them, to pass lightly over their wrongs, and to chime in with the popular theme would be treason most scandalous and shocking and would make me a reproach before God and the world. My subject, then, fellow citizens, is American slavery. I shall see this day and its popular characteristics from the slave's point of view. Standing there, identified with the American bondman, making his wrongs mine, I do not hesitate to declare with all my soul that the character and conduct of this nation never looked blacker to me than on the 4th of July. Whether returned to the declarations of the past or to the professions of the present, the conduct of the nation seems equally hideous and revolting. America is false to the past, false to the present, and solemnly binds herself to be false to the future. Standing with God and the crushed and bleeding slave on this occasion, I will, in the name of humanity, which is outraged, in the name of liberty, which is fettered, in the name of the Constitution and the Bible, which are disregarded and trampled upon, dare to call in question and to denounce with all the emphasis I can command everything that serves to perpetuate slavery, the great sin and shame of America. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will use the severest language I can command and yet not one word shall escape me that any man whose judgment is not blinded by prejudice or who is not at heart a slaveholder shall not confess to be right and just. But I fancy I hear someone of my audience say, it is just in this circumstance that you and your brother abolitionists fail to make a favorable impression on the public mind. Would you argue more and denounce less would you persuade more and rebuke less, your cause would be much more likely to succeed. But I submit, where all is plain, there is nothing to be argued. What point in the anti-slavery creed would you have me argue? 
On what branch of the subject do the people of this country need light? Must I undertake to prove that the slave is a man? That point is conceded already. Nobody doubts it. The slaveholders themselves acknowledge it in the enactment of laws of their government. They acknowledge it when they punish disobedience on the part of the slave. There are 72 crimes in the state of Virginia which, if committed by a black man, no matter how ignorant he be, subject him to the punishment of death. While only two of the same crimes will subject a white man to the like punishment. What is this but the acknowledgement that the slave is a moral, intellectual, and responsible being? The manhood of the slave is conceded. It is admitted in the fact that Southern statute books are covered with enactments forbidding, under severe fines and penalties, the teaching of the slave to read or to write. When you can point to any such laws in reference to the beasts of the field, then I may consent to argue the manhood of the slave. When the dogs in your street, when the fowls of the air, when the cattle on your hills, when the fish of the sea and the reptiles that crawl shall be unable to distinguish the slave from a brute, then will I argue with you that the slave is a man. For the present, it is enough to affirm the equal manhood of the Negro race. Is it not astonishing that while we are plowing, planting, and reaping, using all kinds of mechanical tools, erecting houses, constructing bridges, building ships, working in metals of brass, iron, copper, silver, and gold, that while we are reading, writing, and ciphering, acting as clerks, merchants, and secretaries, having among us lawyers, doctors, ministers, poets, authors, editors, artists, and teachers, that while we are engaged in all manner of enterprises common to other men, digging gold in California, capturing the whale in the Pacific, feeding sheep and cattle on the hillside, living, moving, acting, thinking, planning, living in families as husbands, wives, and children, and above all, confessing and worshiping the Christian's God, and looking hopefully for life and immortality beyond the grave, we are called upon to prove that we are men. Would you have me argue that man is entitled to liberty? That he is the rightful owner of his own body? You have already declared it. Must I argue the wrongfulness of slavery? Is that a question for Republicans? Is it to be settled by the rules of logic and argumentation as a matter beset with great difficulty involving a doubtful application of the principle of justice hard to be understood? How should I look today in the presence of Americans dividing and subdividing a discourse to show that men have a natural right to freedom speaking of it relatively and positively, negatively and affirmatively. To do so would be to make myself ridiculous and to offer an insult to your understanding. There is not a man beneath the canopy of heaven that does not know that slavery is wrong for him. What? Am I to argue that it is wrong to make men brutes, to rob them of their liberty? to work them without wages, to keep them ignorant of their relations to their fellow men, to beat them with sticks, to flay their flesh with a lash, to load their limbs with irons, to hunt them with dogs, to sell them at auction, to sunder their families, to knock out their teeth, to burn their flesh, to starve them into obedience and submission to their masters. Must I argue that a system thus marked with blood and stained with pollution is wrong? No, I will not. I have better employment for my time and strength than such arguments would imply. What then remains to be argued? Is it that slavery is not divine? That God did not establish it? 
that our doctors of divinity are mistaken. There is blasphemy in the thought. That which is inhuman cannot be divine. Who can reason on such a proposition? They that can may. I cannot. The time for such argument is past. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument, is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. What, to the American slave, is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty, an unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. Go where you may. Search where you will. Roam through all the monarchies and despotisms of the old world. Travel through South America. Search out every abuse. And when you have found the last, lay your facts by the side of the everyday practices of this nation. And you will say with me that for revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy, America reigns without a rival. Take the American slave trade, which we are told by the papers is especially prosperous just now. Ex-Senator Benton tells us that the price of men was never higher than now. He mentions the fact to show that slavery is in no danger. This trade is one of the peculiarities of American institutions. It is carried on in all the large towns and cities in one half of this confederacy, and millions are pocketed every year by dealers in this horrid traffic. In several states, this trade is a chief source of wealth. It is called, in contradistinction to the foreign slave trade, the internal slave trade. It is probably called so, too, in order to divert from it the horror with which the foreign slave trade is contemplated. That trade has long since been denounced by this government as piracy. It has been denounced with burning words from the high places of the nation as an execrable traffic. To arrest it, to put an end to it, this nation keeps a squadron at immense cost on the coast of Africa. Everywhere in this country, it is safe 
to speak of this foreign slave trade as a most inhuman traffic, opposed alike to the laws of God and of man. The duty to extirpate and destroy it is admitted even by our doctors of divinity. In order to put an end to it, some of these last have consented that their colored brethren, nominally three, should leave this country and establish themselves on the western coast of Africa. It is, however, a notable fact that while so much execration is poured out by Americans upon those engaged in the foreign slave trade, the men engaged in the slave trade between the states pass without condemnation, and their business is deemed honorable. Behold the practical operation of this internal slave trade, the American slave trade, sustained by American politics and American religion. Here, you will see men and women reared like swine for the market. You know what is a swine drover? I will show you a man drover. They inhabit all our southern states. They perambulate the country and crowd the highways of the nation with droves of human stock. You will see one of these human flesh jobbers, armed with pistol, whip, and bowie knife, delivering a company of a hundred men, women, and children from the Potomac to the slave market at New Orleans. These wretched people are to be sold singly or in lots to suit purchases. They are food for the cotton field and the deadly sugar mill. Mark the sad procession as it moves wearily along and the inhuman wretch who drives them. Hear his savage yells and his blood-chilling oaths as he hurries on his affrighted captives. There, see the old man who locks, thinned and gray. Cast one glance, if you please, upon that young mother whose shoulders are bare to the scorching sun, her briny tears falling on the brow of the babe in her arms. See, too, that girl of thirteen, Weeping, yes, weeping, as she thinks of the mother from whom she has been torn. The drove moves tardily. Heat and sorrow have nearly consumed their strength. Suddenly you hear a quick snap, like the discharge of a rifle. The fetters clank and the chains rattle simultaneously. Your ears are saluted with a scream that seems to have torn its way to the center of your soul. That crack you heard was the sound of the slave whip. The scream you heard was from the woman you saw with the babe. Her speed had faltered under the weight of her child and her chains. That gash on her shoulder tells her to move on. Follow the drove to New Orleans. Attend the auction. See men examined like horses. See the forms of women rudely and brutally exposed to the shocking gaze of American slave buyers. See this drove sold and separated forever and never forget the deep, sad sobs that arose from that scattered multitude. Tell me, citizens, where... Under the sun, you can witness a spectacle more fiendish and shocking. Yet this is but a glance of the American slave trade, as it exists at this moment in the ruling part of the United States. I was born amid such sights and scenes. To me... 
The American slave trade is a terrible reality. When a child, my soul was often pierced with a sense of its horrors. I lived on Philpot Street, Fells Point, Baltimore, and have watched from the wharves the slave ships in the basin, anchored from the shore with their cargoes of human flesh, waiting for favorable winds to waft them down the Chesapeake. There was at that time a grand slave mart kept at the head of favorable winds to waft them down the Chesapeake. There was at that time a grand slave mart kept at the head of Pratt Street by Austin Waldfolk. His agents were sent into every town and county in Maryland, announcing their arrival through the papers and on flaming handbills headed cash for Negroes. These men were generally well-dressed men and very captivating in their manners, ever ready to drink, to treat, and to gamble. The fate of many a slave has depended upon this turn of a single card, and many a child has been snatched from the arms of its mother by bargains arranged in a state of brutal drunkenness. The fleshmongers gathered up their victims by the dozens and drive them chained to the general depot at Baltimore. When a sufficient number have been collected here, a ship is chartered for the purposes of conveying the forlorn crew to Mobile or to New Orleans from the slave prison to the ship. They are usually driven in the darkness of night. For since the anti-slavery agitation, a certain caution is observed. In the deep, still darkness of midnight, I have often been aroused by the dead, heavy footsteps and the piteous cries, the piteous cries of the chained gangs that passed our door. The anguish of my boyish heart was intense, and I was often consoled when speaking to my mistress in the morning to hear her say that the custom was very wicked, that she hated to hear the rattle of the chains and the heart-rending cries. I was glad to find one who sympathized with me in my horror. Fellow citizens, this murderous traffic is today in active operation in this boasted republic. In the solitude of my spirit, I see clouds of dust raised on the highways of the south. I see the bleeding footsteps. I hear the doleful wails of fettered humanity on the way to the slave markets, where the victims are to be sold like horses, sheep, and swine knocked off to the highest bidder. There, I see the tenderest ties ruthlessly broken to gratify the lust, caprice, and rapacity of the buyers and sellers of men. My soul sickens at the sight. Is this the land your fathers loved, a freedom which they toiled to win? Is this the earth whereon they moved? Are these the graves they slumber in? But a still more inhuman, disgraceful, and scandalous state of things remains to be presented. By an act of the American Congress, not yet two years old, Slavery has been nationalized in its most horrible and revolting form. By that act, Mason and Dixon's line has been obliterated. New York has become as Virginia, and the power to hold, hunt, and sell men, women, and children as slaves remains no longer a mere state institution, but is now 
an institution of the whole United States. The power is co-extensive with the star-spangled banner and American Christianity. Where these go may also go the merciless slave hunter. Where these are, man is not sacred. He is a bird for the sportsman's gun. By that most foul and fiendish of all human decrees, the liberty and person of every man are put in peril. Your broad Republican domain is hunting ground for men, not for thieves and robbers, enemies of society merely, but for men guilty of no crime. Your lawmakers have commanded all good citizens to engage in this hellish sport. Your president, your secretary of state, your lords, nobles, and ecclesiastics enforce as a duty you owe to your free and glorious country and to your God that you do this accursed thing. Not fewer than 40 Americans have, within the past two years, been hunted down and, without a moment's warning, hurried away in chains and consigned to slavery and excruciating torture. Some of these had wives and children dependent on them for bread, but of this no account was made. The right of the hunter to his prey stands superior to the right of marriage and to all rights in this republic, the rights of God included. For black men, there are neither law, justice, humanity, not religion. The fugitive slave law makes mercy to them a crime and bribes the judge who tries them. An American judge gets $10 for every victim he consigns to slavery and five when he fails to do so. The oath of any two villains is sufficient under this hell-black enactment to send the most pious and exemplary black man into the remorseless jaws of slavery. His own testimony is nothing. He can bring no witnesses for himself. The minister of American justice is bound by the law to hear but one side, and that side is the side of the oppressor. Let this damning fact be perpetually told. Let it be thundered around the world that in tyrant-killing, king-hating, people-loving, democratic, Christian America, the seats of justice are filled with judges who hold their offices under an open and palpable tribe and are bound in deciding in the case of a man's liberty, here only his accusers, in glaring violation of justice, in shameless disregard of the forms of administering law, in cunning arrangement to entrap the defenseless, and in diabolical intent. This fugitive slave law stands alone in the annals of tyrannical legislation. I doubt if there be another nation on the globe having the brass and the baseness to put such a law on the statute books. If any man in this assembly thinks differently from me in this matter and feels able to disprove my statements, I will gladly confront him at any suitable time and place he may select. Fellow citizens, there is no matter in respect to which 
the people of the North have allowed themselves to be so ruinously imposed upon as that of the pro-slavery character of the Constitution. In that instrument, I hold there is neither warrant, license, nor sanction of the hateful thing, but interpreted as it ought to be interpreted. The Constitution is a glorious liberty document. Read its preamble, consider its purposes. Is slavery among them? Is it at the gateway? Or is it in the temple of the Constitution? It is neither. While I do not intend to argue this question on the present occasion, let me ask if it be not somewhat singular, that if the Constitution were intended to be, by its framers and adopters, a slave-holding instrument, why neither slavery, slave-holding, nor slave can be found anywhere in it? What would be thought of an instrument drawn up, legally drawn up, for the purpose of entitling the city of Rochester to a tract of land in which no mention of land was made? Now, there are certain rules of interpretation for the proper understanding of all legal instruments. These rules are well established. They are plain common sense rules, such as you and I and all of us can understand and apply without having passed years in the study of law. I scout the idea that the question of the constitutionality or unconstitutionality of slavery is not a question for the people. I hold that every American citizen has a right to form an opinion of the Constitution and to propagate that opinion and to use all honorable means to make his opinion the prevailing one. Without this right, the liberty of an American citizen would be as insecure as that of a Frenchman. Ex-Vice President Dallas tells us that the Constitution is an object to which no American mind can be too attentive and no American heart too devoted. He further says, the Constitution, in its words, is plain and intelligible and is meant for the home-bred, unsophisticated understandings of our fellow citizens. Senator Berrien tells us that the Constitution is the fundamental law, that which controls all others. The charter of our liberties, every citizen has a personal interest in understanding this thoroughly. The testimony of Senator Breeze and Lewis Cass and many others that might be named, who were everywhere esteemed as sound lawyers, so regard the Constitution. I take it, therefore, that it is not presumption in a private citizen to form an opinion of that instrument. Now, take the Constitution according to its plain meaning, and I defy the presentation of a single pro-slavery clause in it. On the other hand, it will be found to contain certain principles and purposes entirely hostile to the existence of slavery. I have detained my audience entirely too long already. At some period, I will gladly avail myself of an opportunity to give this subject a full and fair discussion. Allow me to say in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have presented of the state of the nation, I do not despair of this country. There are forces in operation which must inevitably work the downfall of slavery. The arm of the Lord is not shortened, and the doom of slavery is certain. I, therefore, leave off where I began, with hope. While drawing encouragement from the Declaration of Independence, the great principles it contains, and the genius of American institutions, my spirit is also cheered by the obvious tendencies of the age. Nations do not now stand in the same relation to each other that they did ages ago. No nation can now shut itself up from the surrounding world and trot round in the same old path of its fathers without interference. The time was when such could be done. Long established customs of hurtful character could formally fence themselves in and do their evil work with social impunity. 
Knowledge was then confined and enjoyed by the privileged few, and the multitude walked on in mental darkness. But a change has now come over the affairs of mankind. World critics and empires have become unfashionable. The arm of commerce has borne away the gates of the strong city. Intelligence is penetrating the darkest corners of the globe. It makes its pathway over and under the sea, as well as on the earth. Wind, steam, and lightning are its chartered agents. Oceans no longer divide, but link nations together. From Boston to London is now a holiday excursion. Space is comparatively annihilated. Thoughts expressed on one side of the Atlantic are distinctly heard on the other. The far-off and almost fabulous Pacific rolls in grandeur at our feet. The celestial empire, the mystery of ages, is being solved. The fiat of the almighty, let there be light, has not yet spent its force. No abuse, no outrage, whether in taste, sport, or avarice, can now hide itself from the all-pervading light. The iron shoe and the crippled foot of China must be seen in contrast with nature. Africa must rise and put on her yet unwoven garment. Ethiopia shall stretch out her hand unto God. And in the fervent aspirations of William Lloyd Garrison, I say, and let every heart join in saying it, God speed the year of Jubilee, the wide world over. When from their galling chain set free, the oppressed shall vilely bend the knee. And wear the yoke of tyranny like brutes no more. That year will come and freedom's reign to man his plundered rights again restore. God speed the day when human blood shall cease to flow in every clime be understood the claims of human brotherhood and each return for evil good, not blow for blow. That day will come, all feuds to end and change into a faithful friend, each foe. God speed the hour, the glorious hour, when none on earth shall exercise a lordly power, nor in a tyrant's presence cower, but all to manhood's stature tower. By equal birth, that hour will come to each to all, and from his prison house the thrall go forth. Until that year, day, hour arrive, with head and heart and hand I'll strive to break the rod and rend the gyve, the spoiler of his prey deprive. So witness heaven, and never from my chosen post, whate'er the peril or the cost be driven. The words of Frederick Douglass, the abolitionist and leader, someone who was born into enslavement, someone who, under penalty of death, taught himself to read and to write. And he became one of the greatest orators that the United States has ever seen. Frederick Douglass. His speech, What to the American Slave is the 4th of July, was given on July the 5th, 1852, in Rochester, New York. And you've been listening to the reading of parts of that speech by both Ossie Davis the legendary actor, activist, who has now passed away, and by yours truly. I do hope that you hear not only those words, but think about where we are now, dear listener, in this current moment in the United States and beyond. There is fascism in an unmistakable form. And it's definitely here in the United States. And our fight 
to extinguish fascism and to pursue a world that embraces love and human beings and embraces taking care of those who are the most vulnerable among us. That fight must continue on. It cannot take a holiday or a vacation. It must not ever relent. And that means that you and I, dear listener, must vote. And we must vote in every election. Now, obviously next year there's a very, very important election here in the United States. But during the course of this year, as I have done thus far, I will be talking about voting, its importance, what we can do, what we need to do, and also providing important educational tips on voting and the kinds of things you need to do to register people to vote. As we are now in the summertime, this is the first start of the first full month of summer as we are now in July. And we cannot wait until next year to register to vote. We have to do that now. These words from Frederick Douglass can be read in the full speech, by the way, that I will link in the liner notes of this episode. So please make sure you go to wherever you get your podcast and you read the episode description for this particular episode. Make sure you check that out and look at the link. In some cases, you'll be able to click on that link and open up the full text of the speech, the entire speech. In other cases, you will have to paste over the link that has been included in the liner notes and then paste, copy that link over and then paste it in to your browser. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. Mm -hmm.